Well, today let's turn to the Gospel of Luke, and we want to go to chapter 24. I would like to just read verses 1 and 2, because all I'm going to do today is really introduce the chapter, and I'll do so here in a moment and tell you why. But just uh, verses 1 and 2 of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. Well, as you see here, we come now to the uh, last chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And as I said this morning, I just want to simply introduce this chapter because I think something of the importance of the subject matter that will be covered actually beginning in verse 1 all the way down through verse 53. But a particular incident that has taken place that regards all this is the thing that I want us to see. Now, we saw last time that uh, in chapter 23 how our Lord was given over to the will of the people and he was finally crucified. And uh, as we've noted that all four Gospels record something for us in regards to this, each of them giving not a what we would call a different view as if they were being false witnesses, but giving a different angle of the things that took place, some supplying more information than others, some leaving out some things that for whatever reason the Holy Spirit caused that. Uh, But nonetheless, we see at least in this the testimony of four Gospels regarding something of the death or the and the terrible ordeal that took place upon our Lord that he did endure for the sake of his people. In the end, we do read and have noticed that he was crucified and that he was buried. And we know that he spends, uh, and I'm not going to get into the issue of whether it was really three days, three nights, literally, or whether it was just three days, three nights, in a a sense, which was part of the days. That's neither here nor there. It doesn't make any difference. The point of the matter is that Scripture declares that he was three days and three nights in the tomb. However, the Scripture defines three days and three nights being in the tomb. Now, in our present chapter, though, we see that uh, the events that took place uh, begin here, you notice, at the beginning of the first of the week. Or it says here in, our, in Luke's gospel, now upon the first day of the week. And all four writers do give testimony to this very fact. Some of us speak it in another way. For instance, Luke and John do say first day of the week. Uh, I think Matthew and Mark phrase a little bit different, the end of the Sabbath or the part of the past or the Sabbath being passed. Either way, it's the same, comes down to the very same thing, that uh, we see that the events that take place here in this chapter are dealing with the things that took place or are taking place here on the first day of the week. Uh, we call it the Lord's Day, uh, the Sabbath, the rest, whatever. Uh, those are all proper biblical terms in relationship to the events that took place and have continued on as far as the ending of all that until the day of our Lord Jesus itself. The immediate effect event that took place is discussed, as you know, by the resurrection. And all four gospel writers, once again, do give testimony to this place. Even, uh, even those who... Even the, I know there's people who deny the last... What is it? last 16 verses of the Gospel of Mark are not part of the... Uh, account given there. We don't believe that. We believe that Mark did write all 16 chapters of the Word of God. Even Bruce Metzger, by the way, 
who was a textual critic, does believe that uh, Mark 16, beginning at towards the end there, does belong in the Bible, though he doesn't say Mark wrote it, but he does believe it's part of Scripture. So I have to give him credit for that, though he didn't get the writer right on that issue. But the point of the matter is, all four gospel writers give us testimony in regards to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we said, we know that he died and that he was buried. And you remember, as we were looking last time, we were speaking about some of the uh, important ingredients of the gospel. That in the, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see those three important summaries of the gospel. That Christ died and that he was buried according to the scriptures. Now, we read that again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Interesting thing about that, when Paul says that, when he says that it was according to the Scripture, he didn't have in mind there the New Testament when he said that. When he said that that Christ died and that he was buried according to the Scripture, what he had in mind, I'm sure he had also the New Testament as far as he knew that it was going to be more to it. But the fact of the matter is, as far as the Corinthians were concerned, that was Old Testament. That was Old Testament writings when he said the fact that Jesus was going to die and that he was buried according to the Scripture. You remember also the Lord himself spoke of his death during his teachings uh, several times as he was talking to the, um, his disciples as well as some of the religious leaders himself. He told them that he, if you were to destroy this temple, he would raise it up in three days. So all of this, again, was no mystery. It was no hidden fact for those who had eyes, so to speak, to see all that. And both our Lord and the Lord Jesus, the, uh, excuse me, and the Old Testament scriptures speak of the resurrection of Christ as well. So what we're going to be looking at are something of the importance of the resurrection in this chapter. Remember again in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ died and that he was buried according to the scripture. But it goes on to say that according uh, the third day that he rose again according to the scripture. So his rising from the dead has some very important theological slash doctrinal implications and the importance of it even itself. Both upon the great work that was secured in the covenant of grace and also even to our own souls. So when we think about the resurrection this morning, it's not just a great theological truth and that it is, but also it has very strong ramification upon our own souls in salvation itself. So the remainder of the time that I have, I want us to look at eight things, and there are probably more, but this is just some of the things we jotted down uh, as we were looking at this, or I'm looking at this. First of all, when we think of the importance of the resurrection, it sets forth the veracity, and that children means the truthfulness of Scripture. The resurrection of Jesus Christ sets forth that the word of God is true. Because you remember that it spoke of the resurrection of Christ in the Old Testament itself. And of course, when we come to the New Testament, we see that it does speak of the resurrection. Paul does in his gospel accounts, Peter, or in his writings, his epistles, Peter in his, uh, the gospel accounts do set forth that Jesus arose from the dead. Thus, it's true. The scriptures are true. How would we know, as far as that goes, that Jesus rose from the dead except 
by the Word of God. He said, well, you can go over there and look at his tomb. Well, brethren, if you don't believe that he rose from the dead, why would you even think to believe that he died and that he was buried? Because they all hinge together according to the Word of God. So I get kind of, it's kind of funny. They thought, well, look at the empty tomb. That's a proof. Well, where's his empty tomb at? How do you know which tomb is his? See, all that kind of evidential nonsense really cannot prove to us that all of this is true. Brethren, we take it on account because of word, the Word of God itself. And here again, the Word of God is set forth as truth in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 1. I hope I wrote down the right reference there. It looks funny here. Oh, yeah, that's, right. that's what I want. Uh, here Peter, uh, Luke is starting out in his gospel here. He says, or to his, the Acts, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now it's true they saw him, but none of these writers, none of those lookers, are alive today. None of them can give us eyewitness testimony, can they? Can we bring up Peter and say, well, Peter, did you really see the Lord resurrected? How about you, Paul? Uh, how about the several uh, scores of them that saw the Lord Jesus alive after his passion? Well, we can't. How do we know it? Well, we know it by the writings of the Word of God. All of that was fine and good, but again, we have the completed Scripture. And let me assure you this morning, as we'll be looking at it in the next hour, this is the Word of God. Secondly, it sets forth the veracity or the truthfulness of Christ Himself. Again, we take it for granted. If the Scripture is true, what Jesus spoke about Himself and who He is and all of that, that's going to be true as well. But again, we're trying to kind of get it of an outline here. It does set forth that Jesus Christ spoke the truth. He told his disciples, he told his very enemies that he would rise again, that he would be raised from the dead. He said he had power to lay it down and he had the power to take it up. And according to the scriptural accounts, that came true. The veracity or the truthfulness of it. The third thing of the importance is the faithful witnesses, that is the eyewitnesses of Christ after His resurrection. Were they lying? Is Luke telling us the truth here? And his uh, speaking here in the Acts. 1 Corinthians 15, when it deals with the resurrection. And we'll come back to that in just a few moments as well. But in 1 Corinthians 15, and verse 4, And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And here are the eyewitnesses. And that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as one of one born out of due time. So the faithful witnesses, they're not lying. They are faithful, true witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And again, 
those same, some of those witnesses were the ones who pinned Scripture. So we need to believe that. Fourthly, it has regards to our own salvation. There's one that gets right down to the brass tacks, doesn't it? It has something to do with our salvation. In particular, justification. Notice uh, Romans 4, in particular. Romans 4, verse 25. Uh, Paul dealing here, with, actually verse 24, uh, dealing here with the great doctrine of justification, how that God does not impute to us our sins, but He does impute to us, or lay to our charge, lay to our account, the righteousness of Christ. Paul says the capstone of this is the resurrection. He says now, verse 23, it was not written for his sake alone, that is Abraham, that it was imputed to him for righteousness, uh, but to him that imputed him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed. Notice it's in the future there. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again, notice, for our justification. Now, there's many aspects to the doctrine of justification, and that's not my purpose this morning to go through all of that. But one of those angles that we will look at it, that uh, the resurrection of Christ affects the justification of God's people. So, if he is still in the grave, if he is still in a state of corruption, none of us this morning are justified. You say, well, I believe it would make any difference if Jesus is still in the tomb, so to speak, if he is still dead, if he did not arise again, according to the scripture, then the doctrine of justification is a joke. It's not true. Another thing we could say about this is that the resurrection was also central in the gospel preaching in the early church. Now, we know that because we can read the book of Acts. You can go through the book of Acts and you'll see time and time again how that one of the things that they tried to convince the Jews of that day and also to the, of the Gentiles was that the one who was promised to come was going to die. He was the seed of David. It's not David himself that rose from the dead, but it is the Messiah, Christ Jesus. And that... He has arisen from the dead. That was a very important aspect, a very prominent theme in the preaching of the gospel. Even to the Jews, or even to the Gentiles, excuse me. Look in Acts 17. This one just came to my thinking. Acts 17. Here Paul is preaching to the philosophers there on Mars Hill, the heady-minded people of that day. And they were, it's amazing, these heady-minded people with all their intelligence, they were the most superstitious people you can find. Because notice what we see in verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Do intellectuals have gods? Oh, yes, they do. Absolutely. They are superstitious people according to the word of God. And 
Paul here sets forth then the gospel to these folks here on Mars Hill. Obviously not something that they would have ever come up with in all of their philosophical thinking. Remember the Bible says the world uh, by wisdom knew not God. But we have here in verse uh, 31, he says, Because he hath pointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Whereof he hath given assurance to all men, and they had raised him from the dead. Notice here again the prominence of the resurrection of Christ. Not only in the gospel message, but in the fact that there is a judgment day coming. And he assures all men, because he has raised Jesus from the dead, that it will be that man who will stand as judge at that last day. Another thing, too, as it were, to prick their conscience and make them think outside of their religion. So that's another thing. Sixthly, there is the fulfillment of Scripture and revelation to our Lord Himself. The fulfillment of Scripture and relationship to Jesus Christ Himself. Go back to Luke's account again, if you would. Chapter 24. And verse 25, and here Jesus is speaking to his disciples, those who are on the road to Emmaus. And he says, then said he unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things? Now, that would have been talking about his passion in and of itself, as Luke tells us in chapter 1 of, his, of, uh, of Acts. But here he goes on to say, and to enter into his glory. That would have respect then to the resurrection as well as to the ascension of Christ to the right hand of God. So this was something, as we mentioned earlier, was foretold in the scripture. This is something that the Old Testament blatantly, at least again to the eyes of those who had eyes to see, of the coming fact that there would be one who would not only suffer and give his life a ransom for his people, but also to arise from the dead and sit at God's right hand. Also Acts, again, as we mentioned, uh, lots of testimony there, especially in the preaching of the Word of God. In Acts chapter 2, here Peter on the day of Pentecost, and it's a rather lengthy passage, but it does deal with the very thing that I'm talking about. Uh, this is his sermon, or a portion of it. He says in verse 23, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him. Now here again, he's referring back to Old Testament prophecies. For David speaking concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. See, David saw Christ. See, the gospel was preached of the old just as it is in the new. And so David did understand about the Lord Jesus. Again, all Jews who are, of course, unconverted would not have seen that. But the converted Jews, such as David, most definitely would have known of 
Jesus Christ. So this idea that he's just the New Testament revelation and the Old Testament saints had no idea about Christ is just not true. The fact of the matter is David spoke concerning Christ. He even speaks concerning the Lord's resurrection. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. That's taken from Psalm 16. <clears throat> because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, and there he means the grave, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Now, this is Peter quoting David in his sermon here. And so Peter's now going to tell us what he meant. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, that is, David was a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, that is, of David's seed, according to his flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He seeing this before spake, notice, of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all, whereof we are, no, I got it wrong, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received the, of the farmer the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. That is the, the coming of the Spirit upon the church there, beginning in Acts chapter 2. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord hath said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Well, this is just one of the instances here where the Old Testament prophets spoke of the relationship of Christ and the resurrection itself. So again, we see the fulfillment of Scripture then in relationship to this. Seventhly, it is a declaration of Jesus as being the Son of God. The resurrection did not make him the Son of God. He was already the eternal Son of God. But it did manifestly declare that he was whom he declared he was. And that was, of course, and is the Son of God. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. Uh, Let's just start with verse 1. It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he hath promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now, we read that back in Acts 1, or Acts 2, didn't we? And it says here, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. How? By the resurrection from the dead. Now, he's not saying here this is what made him be the Son of God. He was already that. He declared even before his death that he was the Son of God. But this is what openly, as it were, manifests that he is the Son of God, that he is God manifest in the flesh. And it will even be more manifested 
at the last day when he comes in the clouds with his people to take vengeance upon this world. And so there again will be the other manifestation that Jesus is whom he says he is. And then lastly in this part here, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a very important aspect of the faith of God's elect. Look in 1 Corinthians 15. And as you know, this is the chapter that deals with uh, the Christ's resurrection. It uh, deals with our faith in Christ and as well as our own resurrection. It's not just that we will have our souls in heaven, but there will be a day when there is the completed redemption, the the adoption of our bodies, when we too will arise and we will stand, as it were, with our own eyes and see the glory of the Lord, as Job uh, prophesied of old. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is dealing with this very subject. He says in verse 7, Therefore, whether it be I or they, so we preach. And so ye believed. Notice that, that they did believe this. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then, then is our preaching vain, and notice this also, and your faith is also vain. Because it's based on the preaching that Jesus did arise from the dead. And if that's not true, then our faith is based upon a false, a false premise, a false truth. The truth is not even true. And so, if that's so, then our faith, as Paul says here, is worthless. That's what the word vain here means. It's worthless. It's no good. In fact, he goes on to say, yay, and this is why I brought out all of this earlier. We are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is, it then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, here it is, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. So, if the resurrection is a lie, you are still in your sins. And you have no hope of eternal Redemption, whether of the body or of the soul, for that matter. And then he goes into the fact that this is the very thing that we grasp a hold of and believe because of the, of the reality that we ourselves will be resurrected. If Christ is not resurrected, neither will he. If our head is not out of the grave, then neither will the body. So the absolute then necessity and the importance then of the resurrection of Jesus. And this is why all, again, all four gospel accounts give testimony and witness to this very fact. So thus then we see that it's a very important, it's a very great biblical truth that is set forth, that is behind all this narrative that we see in Luke chapter 24. Again, he doesn't get into the theological implications that Paul and Peter's and others do, but nonetheless we see the narrative of it and the importance even of the narrative, because if it's not true, then neither of all these other things. Now, you say, well, you're preaching to the choir, as they say, and I realize that. 
I hope there are none here this morning. This is my observation. I hope there are none here this morning who would claim to be Christian who would deny this fundamental, basic, doctrinal, theological truth that is found in Scripture. I hope there is none here. Even those of you who do not believe the gospel in in a saving fashion, I hope you would not this morning say, well, it's not true. Even you, I pray, would not be as foolish to say that. And then secondly, if there are some here this morning who would say that Christ is still in the grave, or in fact none of this is true, well, then you are yet in your sins. Now, what a place to be in. So I call you to repentance and I call you to faith. And it's through the preaching then you remember that these things are built up for us.